The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Associate Professor at Temple University, Heath Fogg Davis, Ph.D. His new book is Beyond Trans, Does Gender Matter? Whether on birth certificates or college admissions applications or on bathroom doors, why do we need to mark people in places with sex categories? Beyond Trans pushes the conversation on gender identity to its limits, questioning the need for gender categories in the first place. Heath Fogg Davis, himself a transgender man, explores the underlying gender-enforcing policies and customs in American life that have led to transgender bathroom bills, college admissions controversies, and more, challenging the assumption that gender matters. He's a researcher, speaker, and LGBTQ activist published in the Feminist Wire, Perspectives on Politics, and National Political Science Review. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Heath. Thank you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Good to be with you. Well, your book says, well, what people say about your book is that this book goes beyond transgender to question the need for gender classification. So Mm -hmm. you push beyond trans pushes the conversation on gender identity to its limits. I'm going to ask you, how does your book do this? And tell us, what is the conversation? Sure. Um, I think, you know, I wrote this book um, in part because I think that we're at a really interesting moment in our culture right now where a lot of people, most people have heard the term transgender and understand that there are civil rights issues connected to this social identity. But I think that a lot of people don't know quite what this means. And more specifically, they don't maybe know what this means for their own uh, lives and their own practices, in, you know, as far as individuals and also organizations that they're part of, um, what, what flows from this sort of new uh, civil rights uh, social identity. And so in the book, I, I, I argue against the presumption that we just invoke gender uh, in our policies because it's the way that we've always done things. And if you think about um, even, you know, most application forms, bureaucratic forms that are uh, put in front of us, we're often asked right after our name to specify a male or a female gender box. And in my research and in, in, in writing the book, I find that the, that practice of invoking gender is not in most cases, rationally connected to legitimate policy goals or other ways to to get to some of those goals. So I talk about specific case studies in, in the book and bring human stories into the into the um, into the narrative to really question um, why you know if, if if gender is relevant then then how and why I think that um, we're owed an explanation. 
Yeah, let's talk about the case studies, because I think as a social worker, that's the most helpful, because you you talk about different classification systems, like you just, we have to say whether we're male, female, or whatever we are on Mm -hmm. birth certificates, driver's license, passports, uh, bathrooms. Uh, And when I hear people with bathrooms saying, well, you get both sides of the story, but well, what's the big deal? Why can't we just go to the bathroom? (laughs) Why do we, you know... Yeah, why do we need male, female, his and hers? But um, So give us some case studies or some examples that we can apply to those different categories. What is it that, you know, sort of point up these issues of really gender of, of discrimination? Sure. Well, let's go to the bathroom issue because that's the... That's, <clears throat> that's the big one. Sort of the, that's the big issue um, that, <laughs> that's been in the news and, and, and people... Uh, and it's been dubbed a transgender issue. Um, and, and I want to kind of in our conversation kind of unpack that term because that's a bit of a misnomer. Um, but in the bathroom, the public restroom case study, um, when we ask this question about what are the legitimate policy goals when it comes to constructing, uh, you know, um, public bathrooms, I think, and I think a lot of people would agree, that we, can, we should expect a certain degree of privacy. Um, when we're using the bathroom. Also, uh, a certain degree of safety. I think that those are the two main issues that people raise when we we talk about questioning sex-segregated public restrooms. I argue that we can get, we can reach those goals much more efficiently by designing and building public restrooms very differently. I think that we should do, do this in a gender neutral kind of way. And there are some good examples in Philadelphia and Manhattan in some restaurants where space is at a premium. Um, what they've done is that they've built individual toilet stalls with wall, uh, floor to ceiling partitions so people have their individual privacy. And then in the middle of the room, uh, there are sinks and mirrors, uh, and, and there's no reason to gender segregate the, those practices. Um, and so th- th- there are no signs on the doors here. It's just a bathroom. Uh, and I think that this is a really brilliant way of, of zooming in on, on, on a legitimate goal, which is privacy and safety, uh, and that we can get to those much uh, more effectively by getting rid of sex segregation um, the way that the bathrooms are constructed right now causes gender identity discrimination. Um, and this is something that not just, it doesn't just apply to transgender people. And I use my own life as an example. Now, post-transition, I'm, I'm 46, I transitioned at 38. I use men's bathrooms and I don't get any questions. Okay, so, but prior to that, when I was a more androgynous looking person, maybe more masculine presenting female, I would get hassled constantly when I would try to use, use a women's bathroom. So here's an example where what we're really talking about when we talk about gender identity discrimination is people who are perceived uh, by other people in public as not being quite what the expectation for, for femininity or masculinity uh, is in that person's mind. So it's, it's, I like the example because it, it shows that Gender-segregated public restrooms have a negative impact on a much wider range of people. So masculine-appearing women and girls and feminine-appearing boys and men also get hassled. And just, to, just one more thing, too. Um, you think about uh, care, caretakers in, public, in the public sphere. So teachers who are on field trips with their classes, their you know, young children, um, 
have to violate the sex segregated policies to take care of the, the kids that are in their charge. Anybody who has it's a caretaker of somebody who is of the opposite sex, maybe an elderly person, somebody who um, needs assistance using the bathroom, um, has a real conundrum. So the, the, the larger point here is that the way that we sex segregate public restrooms doesn't work well for a whole range of people, um, and a whole range of people would be benefited uh, if we did things differently. Well, I think two things that you brought up, uh, well, one of them in the book I'm thinking about, you're asking people like teachers or maybe even bathroom attendants to make a decision about whether um, somebody can or cannot use the bathroom. I mean, and so, and and sort of like, why should they be able to do that or make those kinds of decisions or even be put in that position anyway? Uh, One of the things that you mentioned, there are bathrooms and there is one, and I don't know if you're specifically mention this in the book, but I know at uh, uh, MoMA, at their restaurant um, in New York City, have a bathroom, as you described early on in the conversation, where you have the different stalls, but then where the sinks and and it's for everybody, um, it's a and then you have all of the the sinks on the outside, and so everybody uses the same bathroom. And and uh, I think that's the kind of bathroom you were describing. And I think also in Europe, they've never bathrooms usually are not segregated necessarily the same way we do here in the United States, for instance. That's true. And I just read that Berlin, the city of Berlin, um, is uh, converting its uh, public sex segregated bathrooms to gender neutral ones, and. The article that I read was talking about the fact that this would actually not cost a lot of money, and it's a pretty easy thing to do. Um, to get to one of the points that you just mentioned, um, the problem with with sex-segregated facilities is that whenever you have a policy that invokes gender, then you have to have people who, who administer the policy. And so that would mean like a manager in a restaurant or a teacher in a school or um, somebody who is charged with enforcing the policy. Um, that's deeply problematic when we think about gender and gender self-determination, giving somebody else the authority to, to override your own self-statement about who you are. Um, and so that happened to me, uh, you know, when I was trying to access female-designated bathrooms um, as somebody who was uh, female but, did you know, didn't maybe match the other people's expectations of femininity. Um, and that goes to the core. So it's, you know, and, and, and I'm glad that you brought up that example in MoMA. I think that in these cases, a lot of people don't even notice or they, or they notice and they think they realize it's not a big deal. Um, and that's kind of what I try to do in the book is to show, to simplify the question and the issues and break it down um, to bring people's anxieties down around what's, what, what they're being asked to do. And you do do that and you do it in the different categories. So, okay, we've been talking about the bathroom issue. I'm one of those people who use whatever bathroom is available. And usually it's not the ladies' room, so I go into the – if nobody's in the men's room, then I go, I mean, and close the door, and that's it, right? But, um, okay, so that that's the bathroom issue, but the, there are other uh, documents, like you say, such as birth certificates or driver's license. So how does that affect us as a, as a culture, as a society, by making us, say, male, female, transgender? And I know with uh, – a lot of young people and I'm involved with the pride center in Albany, New York, and, and some of the kids who are, are transgender, they also have a lot of different 
categories for their uh, mm-hmm. labels. Um, so how does all that fit into, uh, well, let's take um, birth, birth certificates and driver's licenses. Sure. So when we're talking about um, personal identity documents that are issued by the government, like birth certificates and driver's licenses and passports, um, what's the purpose of the, the sex markers on those documents? Um, everything about the document itself is designed to make it possible for um, to verify that we are who we say we are in situations where the risk of, of personal identity fraud is high and the consequences are grave. So you think about the TSA official at the airport checking our passports, and they are instructed to check also the gender to match it up with the person that they see there. Um, Gender markers are not a good way, if we really think about it, to um, identify our personal identity because these are characteristics that we share with a lot of other people. So, um, and and evidence of this, if you think about uh, what credit card companies do, on our credit cards, we don't have any sex markers because credit card companies know that that's not a... It's, it's not a useful way. Um, so they've moved, you know, we have passwords, we have increasingly sort of biometric uh, ways, of whether it's a fingerprint or, you know, the uh, iris identification, uh, different ways to figure out that, you know, verify that we uh, are who we say we are. Um, so the, the only sort of the, the reason why we would say that these are problematic is because most people don't get their sex markers on these documents really scrutinized. It's only people, again, who appear to those, that TSA agent or that person, the, the, the bouncer at the bar, person checking identification documents, people who appear to be gender nonconforming. Um, and so this kind of gets to your, the second point that you pointed out, which is that this label transgender is an umbrella term that encompasses a whole range of different, you know, other terms, subcategories. There are people who are transgender who conform to, to gender norms, and I probably fit into that category. Um, there are people who, who don't, um, people who identify as non-binary or gender fluid that maybe feel like they are both male and female or neither. Um, so you, in, in those cases, it's, you know, whenever you invoke the sex binary, it's going to be problematic. Would there ever be a case, for instance, where it, say a medical situation where it would mm-hmm. be important and you were, you know, in, in some kind of an accident or another country, I'm, I'm just trying to think of yeah. some other situation where it might be helpful or it might be important to know whether this is male, this person is male, female, transgender, whatever, or or not? Yeah. So I think that that's a, a great question um, because it brings us back to uh, our bodies and the physiological attribute attributes that we um, think of as constituting female and male. So when we're born, we are assigned male or female based on if we appear to have a penis or a vagina, and it goes on goes on from there. Um, when you think about specific, you know, instances of healthcare, um, if I break my arm in an accident and I have to go to the hospital, um, how relevant is it, uh, you know, how, how relevant is my gender to that particular situation? However, if you're dealing with um, uh, other scenarios involving uh, sex-based features like 
prostate glands and ovaries and, and um, other, other physiological features, um, it could be important. But I think that we should not just use gender markers as a proxy for what our bodies look like. Um, and that's what we do right now. I think and I argue that we should, uh, that healthcare providers should ask more pointed questions um, that have to do with what, you know, uh, relevant physiological features. And, um, and using gender as just sort of a, a proxy for that is not, is not it's going to be effective for the majority, but for the minority of people who, ha- who are more, have more complicated uh, physiological situations, not just if they're transgender and they're using hormones and have had surgeries, but also for intersex people who are born with, with um, maybe you know, chromosomes that don't neatly fall into male or female or other physiological features. So I always think that it's better and I advocate for asking specific questions it's very important. A healthcare provider who wants to provide the best healthcare to that individual in front of them, that patient, it doesn't matter what the sort of the average, you know, person situation is. It matters what that individual uh, individual situation is, uh, and asking good questions and pointed questions is a better way to do that. So, for instance, and I'm I'm trying to as you're um, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking about let let's say you were pregnant. Uh, maybe even unbeknownst to you, and they were going to do something that would hurt the fetus. Uh, they would need they meaning the the medical care would need the um, need to know that. But that would be yeah. a very specific kind of investigation into that particular person and what the treatment was going to be. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely, and that's a great example of you know if you're going to have any kind of X-rays. For example, it's important to know if the person is, is pregnant and, you know, so when we go to the dentist, we're asked this question. So I think asking that question, you know, are you, to your knowledge, you know, pregnant, rather than just using male or female as a proxy for then going on to ask that question, um, I think is a much being more direct about what's at stake um, it's not so much the person's gender identity in that scenario, but it's actually what their body, uh, how their bodies uh, are and, and what reproductive organs uh, they have or, may, or don't have. So asking a very pointed question, I think, is the better way to go. Right now we're talking about sex classification systems. Let's go on to single sex colleges. Um, how does that fit into the picture? Sure. Well, um, specifically, I talk about uh, private women's colleges in the U.S. Um, and places like Smith and Barnard and Mount Holyoke, uh, the more prestigious women's colleges, have had to deal, been confronted with the issue of, okay, you have a sex, you, you have a, uh, being a woman is the criteria for, you know, applying to the school. So what happens when a transgender woman um, applies? And uh, they weren't prepared for this. It's been happening over the last, you know, maybe five uh, to ten years. Um, what to do in these instances? And um, and there was a lot. They was in the news, and there was controversy about this. Um, so whenever you have the, the uh, definition of woman here, then then what is it? What's the criteria? 
Um, and those schools had to go through a process of really asking that question for themselves. So what, you know, is it the people who were, who were born and assigned female at birth? What happens? You know, is it based on your experience in the world as a girl and as a young woman? Um, and uh, and uh, most of these places ended up adjusting their policies. Mount Holyoke, interestingly enough, went the farthest of all the women's colleges and said, we're open to anybody who, except for one particular group of people, and that group of people, uh, is people who are assigned male at birth and also identify as male at the time of application. So anybody else, so a transgender man could apply and transgender woman, uh, non-transgender person, however, uh, welcome to apply. I argue in the book that, um, that these institutions should retain their feminist mission, which is to provide a space that where uh, opportunities for female leadership and to have classrooms that are majority female and um, to overcome a lot of the, the sexism in the larger society. But I don't think that they, as a civil rights matter, can or should exclude this particular group. I think actually... Um, these women's colleges, and I would call, rename them historically women's colleges, uh, similar to how we say historically black colleges and universities, um, to open the doors to everybody but retain the mission. What are, you're describing women's colleges, and, and, and I, I agree with you, um, uh, there are lots of political reasons and, and reasons why women probably need to have the option to go to an all-female college. But what about men's? Are there, all, are there any left? Are there any yeah. uh, all-male colleges or, or not? Yeah, it was so interesting to do this research. And it was, um, there are uh, just three uh, private men's colleges. Um, and uh, Morehouse is one of them. And I, I can't remember the, the name of the other two. Um, and I can't remember the number of private women's colleges, but it is, it's, it's large. It, it's some, I want to say around 43, 45, something like that in the country. So, um, uh, and, and, and when, I, when I looked at the websites to see the, the mission statements for uh, both kinds of colleges, it was interesting. And all the women's colleges uh, stressed uh, the research that shows that women um, uh, thrive and uh, um, achieve better in, a, in an all-female environment, um, and they, they marshal the social science research there. On the men's colleges, they don't talk at all about uh, the issue of how an all-male environment would benefit the men who go there. Um, and it kind of goes to this, this issue of a real asymmetry. So when we talk about, like, sex-segregated facilities or schools, we have in our mind that we have, okay, it's equal. You know, there are men, you can go, you go to a men's college if you're a man, you can go to a women's college if you're a woman. And we start to see um, that the separate but equal kind of um, goal is very hard to reach. And it kind of even goes back to the bathroom issue we're talking about because you were saying how you would use whatever one's available. Sex-segregated bathrooms um, cause traditional forms of sexism because women have to wait longer um, to access bathrooms. And that has everything to do with how we construct those, those facilities. Um, so not only do we have transgender kind of discrimination, but also um, traditional forms of sexism where one sex is disadvantaged in relationship to the other sex. 
I can't tell you how many lines I have been in, uh, in in public places, whether it's the theater or movies or museums with women standing in line saying, uh, who designed this, these, these bathrooms? It certainly couldn't have been a woman who would design yeah. like two stalls for women. And yet, you know, you'll go into very modern places and you'll still see the same thing. But, um, you know, just... Uh, two bathrooms and, and you've got these long, long lines for women and, of course, no no lines for men. Um, what about, okay, so we don't have that much time. We have a few more minutes sure. left, maybe just a couple minutes. And this is really an important one because it's sex-segregated sports because that's a whole different yeah. issue when we're talking about sports. Yeah, yeah. And, in fact, I, it's the last case study in the book because I think it's the hardest one. I think that there are, we know that there are sex-related physiological features that mostly are based on the amount of testosterone that we have in our bodies that directly impact um, the amount of muscle that we have, uh, lung capacity, and even um, evidence to uh, greater aggression. And so those three things are relevant in a lot of sports. Um, So the question uh, for me uh, and I've just been writing about this in, in an article I'm doing right now, uh, which is a spinoff, talking about the uh, maybe we should have hormone range uh, groupings when it comes to sports rather than just using M and F again as proxies for uh, physiological strength and all, and all of those things. Um, because, again, if you look at Title IX and its implement, implementation in schools and college athletics, uh, there's constant issue of, of traditional sexism that women's programs, you think about basketball, um, uh, football, hockey, some of the major sports, um, that there's a real disparity and then constant issue about how to make things equal for both women and men. Um, maybe we should get rid of the categories and just talk about the sex-related physiological features. Last question. What about you? Because you've had the experience of now um, you're trans, yes, a transgender male, and mm-hmm. now people view you as a male. And what about all the, I mean, the, or are there, uh, the advantages, um, the, the, j- just because you are seen as a man? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I write about this in the book too. I mean, it's 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 very real <laughs> the difference just in, in in walking around the public sphere. And I would just use the example of street harassment. So as a you know, I was I was androgynous in my appearance, but did appear to be female. Um, and so we get the constant um, commentary, street harassment, places that I would go, um, and that never happens anymore. And so I think something just as, you know, as basic as that about how you are allowed to be in public space is vastly different based on how you're perceived. And I'm, you know, I'm perceived as male and I identify as male. But I'm also very like I'm a short guy with classes, and so that's a, a, a everything. But um, but you know, and I and I write in the book that this is it sort of blows my mind, but at the same time, it doesn't surprise me. And although I I benefit from some of these privileges, I don't feel good about it because I I had 38 years of something else, and I know what things look like um, on the other side. It's been a pleasure. It's been great talking to you today. I mean, I think we brought a, a lot of, obviously, a lot of the issues that you discuss in the book, but people uh, really need to read the book to get the details. So um, I've been talking to Heath Fogg Davis, PhD, professor at Temple University and uh, 
author of Beyond Trans, Does Gender Matter? Uh, so, Heath, what um, website can we go to to get more information about the book, about you? Uh, you I assume you can buy the book on Amazon, bookstores everywhere. Yes, you can. And, and I, my website is heathfogdavis.com, um, Fog with two Gs. And, um, yeah, you can buy the book online, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, uh, NYU Press also. And, but you can also get it in a lot of independent bookstores. So I always encourage people to support those places too. Great. Thanks for being on the show today. Thanks so much, Catherine. I've enjoyed it. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Aliens with Gas, we are the Extraterrestrial Rock Show, airing every Saturday afternoon on the VoiceAmerica.com Variety Channel. <laughs> Whatever happens out and about, it kind of dictates our conversation. For sure. And we like to tie in a little bit of the past and obviously keep it real current. And real current was a couple nights ago right here in Phoenix, a phenomenon happened. On Thursday night. Phenomenon. Do, 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 do. <laughs> phenomenon. Do, 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 do. Phenomenon. Do, do. All right, never mind. <laughs> That's every Saturday right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Steven Pinker, Ph.D., uh, Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. He is uh, today... He is one of them, and he's the author of The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. Everywhere you look these days, it appears we live in an increasingly violent world. Car bombs in the Middle East and Southeast Asia, random shootings in the U.S., riots in the U.K. Cognitive neuroscientist and linguist Steven Pinker draws from psychology, history, brain science, war studies, game theory, and popular culture to explore where violence comes from, why it has been so common over the course of history, and how we have been slowly bringing it under control. Currently Harvard College professor and Johnstone family professor of psychology at Harvard University. He has also taught at Stanford and MIT and is a New York Times bestselling author and named Humanist of the Year in 2006. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Stephen. Thank you, Catherine. 
All right, violence. You're saying that violence is on the decline and we are more humane as a society and I guess maybe more humane globally. Of course, this doesn't seem to be the popular understanding. Most of us think that everything or many, uh, that things are worse, things are more violent. We're way too afraid to walk out of the house. We're going to get shot or go to a nightclub or go to a restaurant. Um, so it's the book seems to go against sort of the popular truism of the day that uh, things are getting worse, that, that, that things are more violent. You say no. That's right, because popular impressions are driven by the news. And as long as rates of violence haven't fallen to zero, and they, they never will, uh, there'll always be violent incidents for the news to report. And uh, if you simply go by the news, you'll think that things are getting worse and worse, even if the stories that are reported are less and less frequent, because they're always there. In fact, public opinion polls show that people always say that crime is increasing. When, whether crime is going up, crime is going down, crime is going, uh, staying the same, everyone always thinks it's, it's increasing. I think it's because the news is getting better at covering uh, crime. With uh, several billion smartphones on the planet, everyone is a crime reporter. Everyone is a war correspondent. Uh, So the reports keep coming. But all the boring parts of the world uh, that are at peace or where there hasn't been a school shooting or there hasn't been a mugging, uh, they don't make the news. And as more and more of the world uh, enjoys peace and, and safety, that uh, is hidden from us because it's not, quote, news, unquote. And so we get a mistaken impression that violence is getting worse. But so what does that of, do for uh, us as a culture? I just want to stop you for a second because if we have the perception that it is getting worse because we, you know, we might hear of, uh, you know, some one person getting shot on a 24-hour news service, but we don't hear about the other 2 million who didn't get shot. Um, what does that do in terms of if we have that perception that we really think things are getting worse when they're not, as you described it? We're just hearing more about it all the time, that things are more violent. Uh, I think that this misperception has a number of pernicious effects. One of them is that people don't pay attention to things that work, things that really do drive down rates of violence, uh, such as smart policing in the case of crime, um, tracking data in real time as to what the worst neighborhoods are and to focus police protection on them, and then policing in general. The, uh, we are, there's a lot of concern about uh, racism in police forces and uh, excess violence, as there should be. There's uh, Cops shoot too many people. But uh, on the other side, it is only the uh, presence of uh, police in high crime areas that, that uh, protects people from being preyed upon by the uh, few violent uh, members of a, of a neighborhood. And so if you uh, overreact to police violence by pulling back police protection, then uh, more people are victims of uh, violence. Also, if, the, if you think that the best solution solution to crime is just uh, imposing longer and longer prison sentences, uh, but you don't affect the probability that someone who's committed a crime will, will uh, get apprehended, then that does nothing to uh, crime rates. It, it explodes the prison population, but it doesn't make people any safer. So you, you need to be data-driven. You need to be scientific. That is, we all have opinions about what reduces crime, um, but let's look at the facts. And the fact that violence has gone down, whether people realize it or not, means that's an opening to figure out what works and what doesn't. Same with peace. There are some things that um, we know uh, reduce the frequency and the, uh, and the severity of war. Uh, one of them is peacekeeping forces. Uh, having uh, United Nations forces with blue helmets get in between com- combatants doesn't work 100% of the time, but it works a lot. 
And if uh, you only go by the headlines and you only read about the failures, you don't realize that, uh, that peacekeeping forces are, are, can be highly effective, as are international norms and agreements, such as you don't try to um, mess around with borders by force, uh, you don't annex territory, conquest is, is a no-no. Um, for most of human history, countries would conquer each other's territory the drop of a hat. And the United States got a huge number of states from Mexico in the Mexican War, California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas. Um, that doesn't happen anymore, uh, with some exceptions, and we've got to be mindful of the exceptions, such as Russia annexing uh, Crimea. That was a huge breach of the post-war order, and it's uh, worrisome because it is the respecting of uh, borders uh, and the taboo against conquest that has helped drive rates of war down. So those are just two examples of how you look at history with, especially you look at the numbers. Don't look at the headlines. Look at the numbers. You can see, well, what works, what doesn't. Let's do more of what works. Yeah. So you talk about follow the tread lines instead of the headlines. And I think we tend to, obviously, that's what we've been talking about, follow the headlines. Because then we really do make poor choices in our communities, uh, in our government, politics, policies, uh, both nationally and globally. Um, so your book, obviously, is, is, is critical, very important. Uh, but what would you say, now just kind of, uh, here's another question, what factors, what do you think are some of the, the effects or the greatest effects on this decreasing violence? We're not escalating violence, but we're decreasing. What are those factors? Why do we have less violence? I, I, one of them is to um, uh, acknowledge the importance of uh, the rule of law, and uh, in the national level, effective um, uh, court system and police, police forces and um, uh, fair and effective system of justice. The international equivalent is an international system of organizations like uh, the United Nations and the European Union and uh, trade organizations that bind countries together so that they, are, um, they can resolve their disputes by um, uh, third-party uh, adjudication. Uh, also, when countries and people are bound together in trade and commerce and um, business, they are less likely to plunder each other because you, you don't kill your customers, you don't kill your suppliers, you don't kill your, your, uh, your debtors. Uh, and uh, commercial bonds um, are a, um, a factor that can drive down violence. It's an old idea that goes back to the Enlightenment called gentle commerce, and that's another factor that helps drive rates of violence down. A third is just the idea that um, the most important value is human life that uh, national glory and uh, rectifying historic injustices uh, uh, ought to be downplayed in terms of letting men, women, and children live their lives in in peace. And uh, the the elevation of uh, human life above national glory is another factor that has driven down rates of war. We're less likely to send young men into combat just to... um, uh, increase national influence, or at least we should, and, and that, that has helped to drive down the rate of death in war. So what does that say about our current administration and what's happening and the choices we're making in our government, or that our government officials or our president, or uh, how does what you're saying fit into the kinds of kind of rhetoric we hear from our own government? 
Uh, I, I personally am, uh, am concerned that uh, many of the gains that we've made are in danger of being reversed by the, uh, the, the Trump administration. Uh, for one thing, uh, he was elected on the uh, assumption that the country and the, and the world are spinning out of control. Um, he said, we've had levels of crime like you've never seen. That is totally and utterly and categorically false. You just look at the data, and the rates of crime now are a fraction of what they were in the uh, 1980s, uh, less than half. Uh, in some parts of the country, like New York, uh, they've fallen to a quarter. That is a, a re- reduction by 75% in the murder rate. Uh, so I, people can be receptive to the idea, well, what do you have to lose? We've tried uh, uh, saying, let's try crazy, let's try to shake it up, burn down the empire, drain the swamp. We're in such a uh, state of crisis that any radical lurch is better than the status quo. That is a very dangerous way of uh, selecting a government when, in fact, uh, what, what we've been doing has been uh, working pretty well. And the same is true internationally. Uh, even though there have been there are um, deaths from terrorism, people forget how much terrorism there was in the in the 1970s and the 1980s. You had the the, the Red Brigades and the Symbionese Liberation Army and the Bader Meinhof Gang and Irish uh, Republican Army and the Basque terrorists. Rates of, of terrorism now are actually less than they were in the 70s and 80s. And even at their worst, terrorism kills a tiny fraction of the people that are killed in just ordinary uh, police homicides, the kind that you read about in the crime section. So far too much attention has been given to terrorism compared to uh, crime and uh, and war, and I think we do. So make why do bad we have choices. such a why do we have such a, a short attention span? We the, the people. Why can't we? We you know you you've mentioned the seventies, the eighties. Um, that, that's not that long ago, and we have access to that information. But instead of like sort of looking at some of this these historical perspectives we, we don't do that we just as a country you know getting to, or at least half the country getting sort of hooked into this kind of rhetoric that uh, you know that things are worse and violence is worse and it's the worst time in history how do you hook people into that how do you get them you know obviously they need to read your book but besides that uh what do we do yeah yeah. I, I think it is a it is a problem with our journalistic culture, and I, and I hope that they will uh, reform themselves. First of all, um, uh, we need uh, some uh, a bit of historical context in all news events, and by history, I don't mean <clears throat> the, the Romans, the ancient Greeks. Uh, I mean like you know the 1970s, the 1980s, even the 1990s. And it's amazing how often in the papers and in the op-ed sections you have someone reacting to something that took place yesterday or that morning, uh, using it as proof that the world is getting worse and worse without even looking at what the world was like five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So just a, you know, a smidgen of history would really help us understand the, the, the events of the day. Also, um, numbers, statistics. A, a lot of journalism is just, um, they, they, they flunk basic math. Uh, they don't even look at numbers. And uh, for example, uh, you might have a columnist saying, well, we had the Vietnam War in the 60s, we have the Iraq War in the 2000s, so nothing has changed. But the uh, Iraq War killed 10% of the people uh, that, that the Vietnam War killed. That's a fact. 10 times as many deaths in, in Vietnam, both American soldiers and people in Iraq and, and Vietnam, respectively. Um, and so you don't realize that, that the world has been um, getting better, as, as bad as the worst areas are, if you don't look at some numbers. And uh, journalistic culture, I think, has been um, far too enumerate. There are just too many English majors who hate math. 
And finally, I think especially since um, the kind of Vietnam Watergate era, a lot of journalists just see their mission as pointing out what's what's going wrong, that it's considered to be moral, to be like an old Testament prophet like, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah and saying, look how terrible things are, look how uh, awful our government is, look how awful our institutions are. Uh, And of course, some of that is valuable because there's always room for improvement. But the danger is that it leaves people fatalistic, saying, government is the problem, Uh, let's let's burn it down and start over again, Uh, and uh, let's try someone who is uh, radical, who may not have any uh, plan for the future, but at least knows how to destroy current institutions. I I think that is extraordinarily uh, dangerous and pernicious. Our institutions are imperfect, but chaos and anarchy are much worse. And if you look at the numbers, you see that we have been gradually chipping away at problems and, and making the world better and better. Well, when you talk about journalists, uh, perhaps there are less journalists and more everybody can write whatever they want and say whatever they want, too, on the Internet or or wherever and uh, social media. So you've got a lot of people writing about a lot of things that have a big impact. But as you say, there are no statistics behind it. There's no math behind it. There's really no uh, substance behind what people people are writing about. They're not necessarily journalists, but they have a voice. That that's true, uh, and and uh, ideally norms would spread in uh, the blogosphere and the Twitter Twitter sphere as well. That uh, you don't take people seriously if they just make stuff up, uh, and and that that's a whole uh, an entirely new problem with the rise of social media. But good old fashioned uh, traditional journalism needs to uh, add some historical and statistical nuance as well. Well, you talk about in the book the empathy circle. What's that? The uh, all humans, with the exception of a, of a few psychopaths, have a sense of empathy. We we feel others' pain. We are concerned for people other than ourselves. But uh, left to our own devices, it tends to be a pretty small circle that we extend our empathy toward: uh, our friends, our family. Uh, maybe members of our clan or our tribe, maybe some cute, fuzzy little baby animals. But um, uh, ideally, our empathy should extend to all of humanity. And uh, there's reason to think that over the course of of history, our our circle of empathy has expanded, that we don't just say, um, my my tribe counts, uh, the rest of humanity can uh, go to hell. Um, And you see uh, people thinking more of their, uh, their country, their uh, 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 their civilization and in, and more and more all of humanity. You have statements like the Declo- Universal Declaration of Human Rights that say that all humans' lives have equal value. And now I don't think we can literally love every last member of Homo sapiens, all seven billion people. No one, no one has that much compassion. But knowing that that other people's lives uh, matter as yours do, at least allow you to support policies that treat other lives as equally worthy, even if you don't literally feel their pain. You just know that there's no way you can justify treating someone else's life as less worthy than, than, than someone in the next village or, uh, or in your state. Well, I've read statistics, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the people that in the United States, we are the most generous, the most empathic, or the uh, people in terms of, I guess, in terms of help that we give and supporting, you know, within our culture and also around the world in terms of, of, uh, 
human support or just helping people or in terms of money we give billions of dollars does that fit into this kind of empathy circle and our connection with the rest of the world uh, it does, particularly if the um, charitable donations are distributed to people regardless of uh, their, their personal connection to us. I mean, to the extent that money is given to uh, raise standards of living in, in Africa and Asia uh, and uh, other poor parts of the world and aren't just uh, supporting the opera house next door or the, uh, or the church group or the... Uh, um, a local cultural institution, because you know, a lot, just giving to charity doesn't necessarily mean that you're uh, helping the worst off. Uh, you know, it could mean that you're getting your plaque on a uh, on a local uh, church or synagogue or, uh, or or theater or opera house. But yes, um, I mean, America is a bit paradoxical because on the one hand, uh, there is a high rate of charitable giving. On the other hand, there is far less systematic uh, institutional and governmental support, such as for uh, health care. Uh, as we see today in, in the debates over contracting Medicaid, almost every other industrialized Western democracy has a far more extensive system of, um, of uh, child care support and uh, medical support. Americans choose to do more of it uh, privately and less through the public sector. Uh- I, I, I was going to read this in the beginning, but I know it's on your the cover of your book as well. Uh, that B- Bill Gates uh, we uh, tweeted, "If I could give each of you a graduation present, it would be this: the most inspiring book I ever read." That's your book, "The Better Angels of Our Nature." Uh, what? Why do you think he said that? <laughs> well, um, I, I think that uh, that Bill Gates shares the. Um, a kind of uh, guarded rational optimism that if we use our uh, intelligence and use our resources to address the world's problems, um, we can solve them. Uh, Not 100%. There's no such thing as utopia. But we can save lives. We can provide uh, more of the world with an education. We can allow more people to, to, to live their lives in peace and safety if we treat it as rational uh, uh, rationally as problems to be solved. And, and that, of course, is very much the mindset behind my book, uh, behind the better angels of our nature, namely, uh, let's look at what has worked. Uh, let's acknowledge that, that something has worked because rates of violence have gone down. And um, I, I think it's that kind of rational optimism that, uh, that, that Bill Gates uh, and I share. Well, you talk about as okay, what has worked and what hasn't worked. Or well, let's take a look at what has worked to decrease violence. You talk specifically, you know, violence against women, children, um, homosexuals, gay people. Uh, what has in those specific areas helped to decrease violence? Uh, part of it is uh, just making people aware of problems that they may have uh, just taken in stride in the past. Uh, it, it used to be that that uh, a man beating his wife was just, you know, no big deal. It was kind of a source of comedy. Uh, those of us old enough to remember Jackie Gleason and the Honeymooners remember that one of his laugh lines was, one of these days, Alice, right in the kisser, threatening yeah. to punch his wife in the face. Uh, and that was a great line of comedy. We all, you know, cracked up. Uh, that would be almost unthinkable in mainstream media today because of an awareness of the, uh, the horrors of domestic violence, of child abuse, of sexual violence, uh, and though we have not, uh, needless to say, eliminated any of those problems, the very fact that people are aware of them means that we have 
brought them down. Very few people are aware that the rate of rape has decreased 75% in the United States since the early 1970s. And that was the time at which feminist groups made people aware of the casual way in which rape was often treated by the police and the, and the court system. Uh, it led to changes in laws. Uh, prior to the 1970s, in many states, um, a husband could not be charged with raping his wife. Uh, a man just had, had a legal right to sex with his wife, whether she wanted to or not. Uh, that has changed. Uh, and there are many other changes. Child abuse is another example, thanks to um, Oprah Winfrey, thanks to public education campaigns. It's no longer okay to, to beat up your child, to, to, to kick your child or to threaten them with a weapon. Uh, and these changes, again, don't, they don't work miracles, but they do bring, bring the rates down. Perhaps the latest example is bullying. Uh, in, when I was a child, the idea that uh, bullying would be considered a major social problem would have been kind of a joke. Like, what, do we want our, our sons to grow up to be sissies and, and, and pansies and, and Nancy boys? Uh, that's how you, 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 know, that's how you, how you become tough and, and, and um, stand up to the world. Now, bullying is considered such a problem that uh, uh, President Obama gave a, a major speech on bullying a few years ago. Uh, so it's another example of how a kind of violence that used to be taken for granted is now considered to be uh, unacceptable, and it's considered to be something that if we try to reduce it, we can. And in fact, we have. Rates of bullying have gone down. Last question. We only have a few minutes left. What about, you, you talk about the rights revolution and, uh, and what have been some of its leading causes? The... Um, uh, a combination, I, th- I think the increase in the circle of empathy, the fact that we put ourselves in the shoes of uh, people unlike ourselves, of, of uh, racial minorities, of um, children, and increasingly of animals, as you have an, an animal rights movement. The circle of the empathy has been expanded to non-humans simply because they are capable of feeling pain, and there's no reason that their pain should be discounted just because they, they can't talk. Um, also, But it isn't just empathy. It's also concrete actions that, that work. And the success of the nonviolent civil rights movement, the uh, civil rights revolution of the early, of the early and mid-60s led by uh, Martin Luther King, using principles of nonviolent resistance, uh, which led to the elimination of Jim Crow and the Civil Rights Act. That was then emulated by other groups. You had the women's rights movement that patterned itself in part on the civil rights movement, including uh, even language like there was racism that was combated. Well, now let's, let's combat sexism. And the gay rights movement, in turn, took a, a page from the book of the civil rights and the women's rights movements. And then the children's rights movements were inspired by the successes of those movements. And then the animal rights movements. So when you realize that certain things can work, that you can really make people better off without having to kill them in the, in the process, um, that, that inspires um, uh, other groups to, um, to agitate for further advances. Great. It's been great talking to you today, and obviously this is a, uh, a fantastic book, something that we all should read. So if we're going to give us a website where we can go to, I can buy it on bookstores everywhere, Amazon, but to get more information about the book and about you, um, where do we go? Uh, my website is stephenpinker.com. That's easy. <laughs> StephenBigger.com, yes, and the, and the book, as you say, is available not only online, but in uh, neighborhood bookstores, which we all want to support. Right, great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I'm going to mention the book again, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. Stephen Pinker, 
with a B, PhD, Harvard professor. Um, great talking to you today. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 